0: Good morning, GBC family. Morning. Would you guys just join me in prayer? Father, I uh, just wanna thank you and praise you for the privilege of being able to come together as a family and worship and praise you, Lord. I wanna thank you for the privilege of being together together and open your word and explore who you are and who we are in you, Lord. Want to ask that as we go through today lord and into next week would you give us wisdom Uh, would you allow uh, the things that you would have us hear, lord would you allow those things to fall on fertile hearts and would you allow us to apply them to our lives in such a way as to honor and glorify your name in jesus name amen so good morning again my name is jason and i'm on the pastoral staff here at gbc uh, but a long time before I was a pastor, I was a cook in the Navy, or as a friend of mine reminded me this morning, a stew burner uh, on submarines. And when I had gotten out of boot camp, I went to my first boat, and it was an amazing experience. I had a ton of fun. I worked with people that I loved. I did I did work that I love. Um, I had a, I had a um, a command that was excellent. And even on that boat, uh, during my time in that boat, uh, that's when I surrendered my life to Christ. So that was an amazing time for me. And then I received orders to go to my second boat. And I thought, awesome, this is gonna be great. And it was not. This boat that I went to was broken. It was uh, in dry dock up in Bremerton. So I went from sunny, warm Hawaii into cold, rainy Seattle, and I was there uh, when i got there i was told that we would have a full division but uh two days after i got there within um yeah within about two days uh we went from a full division down to just me and one other guy and so he me and anthony griffin we did 12 hours on 12 hours off for six months straight working while we were in dry dock i got one 36 hour leave during that time and actually that was kind of a bright spot i got to go see uh, my team, the Seattle Seahawks, play Kansas City in the Kingdom. And at that game, Joe Montana uh, became the fifth quarterback in history to surpass 40,000 yards, and everybody gave him a standing ovation. That was really cool. It's got nothing to do with this morning, but I just kind of <laughs> wanted to mention that. Because what a touch of fame. So, anyways, so uh, then the boat uh, was finally fixed, and so we started to head back to Hawaii. And I was told that waiting in Hawaii, because it was still just the two of us, waiting in Hawaii was going to be a first class petty officer, a chief, so I was no longer in charge, and another third class, so we would have a full division. And that actually happened. The first class was a barely functioning alcoholic. The chief was so incompetent that none of the other chiefs would speak to him. And the third class was an aggressively professed devil worshiper who openly mocked my faith. So, needless to say, that boat was, was very difficult. And I stayed, um, I finished all my sea tour there, and it, <laughs> when I was getting my exit interview by the captain, it turned out that the captain that very day was fired from being a captain because he'd gotten to a, into a drunken fight at a strip club. And I'll tell you, this may seem dramatic, but I thought this boat was hell on earth the entire time I was there. And I kid you not, the hull number of that boat was 666. (laughs) So today, (laughs) today we're going to be talking about being at peace when we have trouble. And if you brought your Bible with you, we are going to be jumping into a lot of Scripture today. So if you remember sword drills when you were a kid, get ready, because we're going to be in John, we're going to be in Zechariah, Ephesians, First Chronicles, or, or Second Chronicles, First Samuel. We're going to be all over the place, so kind of get ready. Um, so just to recap last week, because today we're continuing in a conversation that Jesus ha- is having with His disciples, and in this section of the Gospel of John, Jesus is preparing them, His disciples, for His departure. Uh, Last week, Zach talked about how when Jesus said that when he goes, the Holy Spirit will come, and the Holy Spirit will live in them, and that they, or we, all believers, uh, will become the temple or tabernacle of the Lord, and that the Spirit will testify to us, through us, and will convict us, and will guide us. So, continuing in this conversation today, now that Jesus has kind of planted in the disciples' minds that it's actually a good thing that he's going away, He spends the next three verses doing three pretty incredible things. Number one, he encapsulates the love of God in just a few words, as only Jesus can do. Number two, he pictures the fully encompassing nature of God's grace. And number three, he solidly cements the victorious nature of our lives in him. So with that, let's read John uh, chapter 16, verses 25 to 33. Though I have been speaking figuratively, and remember last week the disciples responded to what he was saying with, what is he talking about? We don't understand what he's saying. So though I have been speaking figuratively, um, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe me? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered Each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So we're going to break this scripture into three sections this morning. The first section is 25 through 28, the second is 29 through the first half of verse 33, and then The last section is that last half of verse 33, so we're going to go out of order because the middle section is going to actually be our application section. So first, end, and then back to the middle. So verses 25 through 28, though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf, no, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father." So I mentioned that Jesus fully encapsulates the love of God in just a few words, and this is where he does it. Jesus is saying here that in the time to come after his death and resurrection, that the disciples will, one, uh, the relationship that they have with the Father will be fully restored. Number two, that they will have full, unfettered access to Him. And number three, they will know Him more intimately than ever before because they will know Him through Jesus Christ. So contrast that with the relationship that they had with God prior, which was mediated through uh, priests, which through uh, sacrifices, and through the law. So the atoning work of Christ that they will realize in His going away radically and completely changes the nature of their relationship with God. And then he reveals why this is so. He says, the Father himself loved you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, at first glance, this seems to say that God only loves us if and when we have loved and believed in Jesus. But consider the timing of when he says this. Consider the situation that the apostles, the disciples were in when, he's, when he says this. William Barclay explains it like this. Often we tend to think in terms of an angry God and a gentle Jesus. What Jesus did is presented in a way which seems to mean that he changed the attitude of God to men and made him a God of love instead of a God of judgment. But here Jesus is saying, you can go to God because he loves you, and he says this before the cross. He did not die to change God into love He died to tell us that God is love. He came not because God so hated the world, but because God so loved the world. Jesus brought to men the love of God, and that is the love of God. It always existed. The atoning work of Christ didn't create that love or jumpstart it or cause God to change his mind. It simply opened us the way for us to fully access it. Jesus said, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. And in doing so, he makes a way for us to follow him. Now, skipping to the end, uh, the end of uh, this section in John, we're gonna look at verse 33b, the second half of 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When I was preparing for this, The thing that came to mind, and I wanted to show you a picture today, but there's copyright laws so we can't. But the thing that came to mind was in Braveheart, when William Wallace is riding across the battle line of of his army, and he's inspiring them with his words. And if you think of Christ doing this across the battle line of all of us, thinking, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's certainly inspiring, but there's always the question of practicality how do we do that? How do we take heart in the face of the evil and the trouble that we experience in this world? How do we take heart at this truth that Christ has overcome the world? For that, get ready, we're going to go back into 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So please turn with me if you have your Bible. It's a pretty decent-sized scripture. We're going to jump around within it. So chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles, here we have... um, we're picking up in the middle of King Jehoshaphat's reign of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jehoshaphat, for the most part, had been an obedient king, for the most part. He'd failed in a few ways, but in here in chapter 20, it kind of has him returning to a posture of obedience to God. So he had made reforms to, reforms to his kingdom, uh, being obedient to God and calling the people of Judah to join him in that obedience, and then he had trouble. Remember that Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Not that we will have trouble when we become obedient, but that we will have trouble normally. So what was the trouble that Jehoshaphat had? Well, 2 Chronicles 20, starting at verse 1. After this, and he's saying after this, after the king had made obedient changes to his kingdom. So after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, together with some of the Meunites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and from Edom has come to fight against you. They are already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and he resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all Judah who gathered to seek the Lord. They came from all the cities of Judah to seek him. So the enemies of the Lord had gathered against Jehoshaphat's kingdom What he did is he resolved to seek the Lord, and he called all of Judah to do that with him. So he prayed. Now here's a question. All these people are gathered as a threat to his kingdom, this massive army, and his response was to pray. Do you think they might have ridiculed him for that? They probably did. But Charles Spurgeon says this about Jehoshaphat's prayer. He said, This was Israel's artillery. This was their 81-ton gun. When it was ready, it would throw one bolt and only one, and that would crush three nations at once. God's people resorted only to the invisible arm, the arm omnipotent, and they did well and wisely. So let's check out this 81-ton gun of a prayer. First, they expressed confidence in the Lord. They said, or they prayed, Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven, and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, and no one can stand against you. Next, they pleaded his past acts, so they recognized his past faithfulness. Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Then they pleaded the promise of God or they rested on the promised future faithfulness of God. They have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you because of our distress, and you will hear and deliver. And then they confess their own unhappy condition in a posture called lament. Now, here are the Ammonites, Moabites, and inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. And lastly, they promised to look only to God for help. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. Now, this seems like a wonderful model for prayer that we could certainly incorporate into our lives, our daily prayer life, right? But why would we? Well, let's take a look at God's response to this prayer. So picking back up at verse 13, this is again 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 13. All of Judah was standing before the Lord with their dependents, their wives and their children, in the middle of the congregation. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, he was a Levite priest, and he said, listen carefully, all Judah and you inhabitants, Of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat this is what the Lord says do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number for the battle is not yours but God's go down tomorrow and go against them and then he said you will see them coming up the ascent of Aziz you will find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeruel you do not have to fight this battle position yourselves stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you." And so they did just that. The king and all the people knelt on the ground and worshiped God, and from verse 20, as they were about to go out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, "'Hear me, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. And they praise God saying, give thanks to the Lord for his faithfulness endures forever. Wanna know what happens next? You ever see Lord of the Rings? You ever wonder where Tolkien got inspired for his battles? Check this out from verse 22. The moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, Moabites, and inhabitants of Mount Seir who came to fight against Judah and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites turned against the inhabitants of Mansir and completely annihilated them. When they had finished uh, with the inhabitants of Matsir, they helped destroy each other. When Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked for the large army, but there were only corpses lying on the ground. Nobody had escaped." So here's the point from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world, this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The war that we fight here and now is a spiritual war. It's in the heavenly realms. It's not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual warfare. And we have to adorn ourselves with spiritual armor. Zach Zach talked last week about spiritual armor, like the shield of faith or the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We often tend to focus on the people we face as being the enemy. Maybe the horrible, abusive boss that you have, the ex wife, the ex husband, the friend who gossips about us. We make these people into the ultimate enemy and they threaten our joy and our peace. We make them into the ultimate villain, and we get from that our sense of vengeance, or we make them into the ultimate opponent, and it's either kill or be killed. At the end of the day, we see them as the Ammonites and Moabites who loomed in front of the kingdom of Judah, except instead of seeking God like Jehoshaphat, we tend to react quickly to the punches with counterpunches. Instead, we need to recognize that our battle is not against flesh and blood, that the people in this world who are doing the deeds of evil are not the ultimate enemy. Satan is. Satan is the ultimate enemy. And when we realize that, we can recognize that the armor we need is the armor of God. The armor that gets stuff done is the armor of God. The armor that ultimately wins is the armor of God. This is the kind of armor that ultimately empowers us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and remember this war is won the powers of this world the powers in the heavenly realms that prey on the hearts of people will turn against itself and there will be nothing left there will be just be a conquered battlefield so please turn to first samuel chapter 17 And think back for a moment to when the Israelites faced the Philistines and Goliath challenged them. King Saul and all of Israel were terrified at this massive taunting enemy, but David, a young shepherd whose heart was pure and entirely focused on God, answered that challenge. And Saul's response to that answer was to try to arm David with his own armor. So picking up uh, chapter 17, 1 Samuel, verses 38 and 39, Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. David rested in God and went at this massive enemy with only some smooth, simple stones from the brook. He sank one of those stones into Goliath's head and then finished him off with his own sword. Charles Spurgeon suggests that these smooth, simple stones that David wielded are actually an Old Testament picture of the gospel. He says, the simple preaching of the gospel, this is what lays Goliath, lays Goliath low and will lay him low till the last day. It is vain for the church even to think that she will win the victory by wealth or by rank or by civil authority, no government will assist her. To the power of God alone she must look. Not by strength, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies, from Zechariah 4:6. This fight with Goliath, like the fight against the Ammonites and the Moabites that Jehoshaphat had, is a spiritual picture showing that the battle is the Lord's. David actually says so outright in verse 45 or starting at verse 45, David said to Goliath, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the Lord, all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's he will hand you over to us folks we're victorious in Christ when we look only to him that's how we take heart at the idea that God has that Christ has overcome the world that he's conquered the world, that promise but can you take hold of that promise can i what makes us worthy of it? The simple answer is that we're not worthy of it. But Christ, which brings us back to the, to the final section of today's scripture, where we find the very depths of God's grace. So back to John 16, starting at verse 28. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you any questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me... You may have peace. This is God's grace. So check this out. They said, This makes us believe that you came from God. And Jesus responds, Do you? I look through the scriptures, I look through the gospels in particular, and I found tons of examples where the apostles seem to kind of re arrive at this conclusion almost on a daily basis. Think about when Jesus fed the 5,000. So in Matthew 14, He's uh, 5,000 people had gathered to hear Jesus speak, and they were hungry, and Jesus fed them all with five loaves of bread and a few fish. Later on that very night, he calms a storm that they all thought were going to kill him, right? And he walks on water. And then they said, truly, you are the Son of God. Two days later, two or three days later, the same thing happens again. 4,000 people have gathered to hear him speak, and he tells his disciples to feed them and they start pulling their hair out because there's only seven fish or seven loaves of bread and a couple fish. How quickly they had forgotten. So now here we are again in John 16 after all these things have, uh, that were recorded in Matthew have taken place and they're saying, this makes us believe that you are the Christ or that you came from God. And he says, do you? And then he tells them, That they will scatter like the wind." But after that, in this kind of odd way, almost like there's a section missing, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. I've told you that you're fickle. I've told you that your faith is weak. I've told you that you will scatter and run and that you will fail. And in what seems like an irony of ironies, He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Have you ever thought to yourself that God wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole? Have you ever thought to yourself that God is here for other people, but not for you? That he really wouldn't pay you any minds? Here's the thing. God doesn't say, for God so loved the people who haven't totally screwed their lives up. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will not perish but will have eternal life. You see, he knows us and he loves us anyways. That's grace. He knows us and he provides for us anyways. He knows us and he helps us. He sustains us. He fills us with wisdom and understanding. He bears fruit in our lives anyways. He does all of this with the foreknowledge of our weaknesses, our doubting, and our fears. He knew knew that the disciples would scatter in fear and deny him, and they did. And he went to the cross anyways. Long before you and I were ever born, he knew us. And he willingly died anyways so again one of my constant go-to voices of wisdom charles spurgeon says about this when he did not when he did not need their friendship they were his very good friends when they could do nothing for him if they tried they were his faithful followers but the pinch has come now might they watch with him for one hour Now might they go with him amid the rabble throng and interpose at least the vote of a minority against the masses, but they are gone. So there he stands. They have left him alone, but there he is, still standing to his purpose. He has come to save, and he will save. He has come to redeem, and he will redeem. He has come to overcome the world, and he will overcome it. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. Jesus is saying to them and to us, be at peace, trust in me, because I know you will fail me. I know that your hearts will be tempted by the comforts of wealth and the distractions of our media. I know that your flesh will find the good things that I have given you and worship them instead of me. Be at peace, trust in me. Be at peace, because I know that the suffering you will experience in this world will make you afraid. It will cause you to doubt me. I know that the people in your workplace will give you a hard time, because you don't worship what they worship. I know that sickness and death will come near, and will even enter into the circles of your life. I know that the world will hurt you. Be at peace. Trust in me. I know that you will scatter and run away, that you will lose courage, that you will be fearful, and that your faith will waver. But even in that, be at peace, for I have conquered the world for you. From Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 31-39, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Church family, this is the grace of God defined. Jesus knew all that would happen, all the failures of all time, and he told us that he knew these things so that we we could be at peace. Would you guys stand with me? We stand together as brothers and sisters on the battle line and the army of enemies is arrayed in front of us and they're already defeated. So take heart, take heart and take the posture that Christians of old, failed Christians, people who were flawed, they took that posture of worshiping God and praising Him because He is the God of angel armies and we are victorious in Christ. Please sing with me.